As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. And we're back with an all-new episode of Keep It Home Edition. We keep insisting on doing this. I don't know what's wrong with us or if there's something wrong with the listeners, but we persist. (laughs) The fact that they come back every time. I know. Their problem, really. The people are listening. The people want to hear it. Yeah, I hope they need it as much as I feel like I need it. Anyway, uh, we have a great show for everyone this week. Uh, The Knives are not just out. With us, they are out with Allison Roman and Chrissy Teigen. <laughs> They're sharpened. The knives really are. Which out. is shockingly more fun as a conflict than I expected it to be. And also, it tied up, we'll get into it. It tied up in a way that um, pleased me. Yeah. And we will also be talking with the fantastic Simone Missick, star of CBS's. All Rise. You guys, All Rise at the moment is that girl. I am very surprised they are going for it this hard. It's kind of thrilling to see. Yeah. Anyway, we'll be right back with more Keep It. Since March, Crooked's coronavirus release fund has raised over $2 million to support organizations at the front lines of this crisis. Thank you so much for your support. Now that it's crossed the 2 million mark, we selected some new groups to support in order to help underserved communities get the resources they need during this time, including World Central Kitchen, Masks for the People, One Fair Wage, and more. The fund spreads your donations equally to groups providing food, healthcare support, PPE, and relief to those hit hardest by this crisis. So make a donation at crooked.com slash coronavirus. This week, Elon Musk is forcing Tesla factory workers to return to work so he doesn't have to raise his baby. Two equally <laughs> life-threatening choices. So what have we been consuming this week to forget the horrors being inflicted on us by the pro-economy contingent of the United States? Well, I have entirely ignored Grimes and their captcha-ass baby that they made. But... um you know, I did you guys watch the Erica Badu and Jill Scott versus? Yes. I was there yes. for all three I did. hours. I did. All yes. three hours. I've never been so excited to watch a versus. I mean, and there's one that's coming up with Ludacris and Nelly that I'm very excited mm-hmm. to watch. I've got but, my Fubu out for that ready? one. I've oh, got set. my Fubu, my Fubu <laughs> gonna, jersey. The tall tees all the way down to my <laughs> knees. I'm so ready. I'm so ready. But the the Jill Scott and Erica Badu was the best it was it was the i think the best i've felt since this quarantine started um mm-hmm. it just it was it was so nice and there was even a point where like badu d- disconnected right before she's about to play her last song and joe scott played it for her and there was certainly no winner because both of those women are revolutionary for me but it was just a beautiful time and um i think it's funny because Growing up, I'd always pit them against each other because the media did and everyone did. And they Mm -hmm. even talked about it in the verses. But they're so different. 
they're so different. They have such beautiful qualities to them that are so important. And ooh, I love me some Erica Badu. Ooh, I love me some Jill Scott. Uh, I feel like I reflect on this particular niche in pop culture history more than other people. But you have to understand, in the early 2000s, if you watched VH1, you could not get away from Jill Scott. Mm -hmm. I watched that video for a long walk 25,000 times thanks to (laughs) basic cable or um, the getting in my way video. Like Jill Scott was just like a voice you had in your ear and she was such a pleasant kind of life affirming voice that followed Erica Badu who emerged a few years before. But to see them interact in this way, the amount of gratitude was actually almost overwhelming. I've never seen two people more gracious for each other. They usually do celebrate each other, but of course it took the black woman doing their verses for that to turn around the dynamic of what the verses was. Like they're playing each other's songs, they're celebrating each other. It really felt communal. And I think that another thing that I didn't know, which should be basic pop culture knowledge, I think, is that Jill Scott wrote You Got Me mm-hmm. and then Erica Badu sang it. And that's how Jill Scott's career started to elevate and she got the opportunity to be put on the pedestal. And I love Jill Scott. She gives me very like reading Lucille Clifton before choir practice energy, but I like <laughs> love that about her. I love that about her so much. Yeah, you know, she had sort of this quality that was very, um, I'm just sipping some Crown Royal. I mean, she did her song Crown Royal. Ooh, that song. uh, (laughs) And, you know, she's always had this sort of raunchy, but also chill, intellectual vibe about her. You know, like, Mm -hmm. Crown Royal is one of the raunchiest songs, but it's also intellectual it's neo soul you know it's it's a yes. quiet sunday afternoon and i really like the vibe of that with erica's neo soul which is you know also sort of like a knuck if you buck mm-hmm. thing like danger tyrone these are songs for someone who has a pistol hidden under their bed. <laughs> yeah yeah and i really found the affirmation great especially you know um with this past week, you know, in the black community, I feel like yeah. a lot of people really just needed something like this to soothe them. And mm-hmm. the verses always introduces you to music that you haven't listened to in a minute. And, you know, I feel like I had always been more of an Erica fan. And Jill's first album, obviously, um, I wore out. Yes. 2000 is sort of when I started high school. And that album was in my discman constantly. Uh, spinning like and spinning. I knew what the fuck verbal elation was. Okay. Verbal Being elation, like, oh yeah, like, I want <laughs> I was like, yeah, I want that. I want to yes. take a long walk with somebody. My fat ass wasn't walking nowhere. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> That's just such a cute era. That was also the time of like India Ari emerging and Macy Gray yes. and like this kind yes. of like soothing voices that did have a, I don't know about a rage to them, but there was a, a flip side to it just being sort of adult contemporary music. Uh-huh. The connectivity. Yeah, I love that. And I think that they all, they both have such mean pens. Like their lyrics were actually so powerful, but so simple and just beautiful. So that was the first thing that I got into. Just speaking of the pen, there was, I feel like one big takeaway from Jill Scott's thing was that she had no prior experience when she did You Got Me uh, for The Roots and Erica. Mm-hmm. And she lied about having the experience and it's you know i think it was just a message to when you get your shot to always take it yes you know it was like a sermon on writing she also said that like if you're writing shit down for yourself um i think it was a moment when erica badu was like she praised jill scott for putting her poetry out there just because erica badu said that she has 
journals of poetry that she's never released. Mm-hmm. They are only for her. Uh, and I think Jill said that, you know, you have to put that stuff out there because it's not for you anymore. And yeah. I don't know. It felt really affirming as a writer to listen to both of them. So if you can track down that versus, I would definitely recommend it. Very resonant. It is on YouTube now if you want to rewatch it. And also, yeah, the Erica said one thing about how her art was something that she had to get out of her rather than out for people. And it in both ways it was just it was just beautiful. It reminds you of last week, right? You know, with Andre Holland saying that you know, making art for yourself and your family and friends. It's not for Yeah, community you can't think based. of the worldwide consumption of it. Yeah. And this, Ira, you were getting to this point, I think, of course, the black community is hurting right now. And um, another thing that I was doing in the same vein of nostalgia and looking, listening to old music, because we lost Andre Harrell, we lost Betty Wright, and we lost Lil Richard all in one week. And mm-hmm. it's like, I didn't even have time to go back and reminisce and look at old songs because it's like every day, it was a whole new playlist of songs that I had to sit with. So... You know, moment of silence for every black auntie everywhere. <laughs> she really lost everything she had. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I've been I've been crying my way through old Soul Train videos, just trying mm-hmm. to trying to keep it together. <laughs> Little Richard was an especially hard moment that just sort of hit me, mostly because I believe his death was reported late, late in Los Angeles. Mm. And so it, it was a time when I, I wouldn't have seen it if I had gone to bed at a reasonable time. But, <laughs> of course, when have I gone to up. bed before 6 a.m. in the past few weeks? <laughs> I literally just sit in my bed at like 2.30 and then just stare at the ceiling. Do you even sleep? Finally fall asleep. I fall asleep? I, I try to on Monday nights at least. You know, I may take a little tonin. <laughs> or something. <laughs> but Mella. The girl's still going on work zooms for my Netflix gig. Yeah, same. And not it's... being able to sleep till six, it is it is rough. There does seem to be general communal truth to the idea that like you're tired at every second of the day until it's time to go to bed. In which case, finally, your your brain is up and you have fully fledged ideas and right. uh, have no yeah. reason to sleep. It feels like college all over again. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or summer break. It's just constantly summer break and you have no understanding of nocturnal or like day or anything. Nothing right, matters. right. My brain reminding me like, oh, I used to do homework assignments at what, 3 a.m.? Yeah. <laughs> For some reason. Uh, but the Little Richard stuff, it hit, but it also, I felt, was very affirming, almost in that Jill and Erica way, because the outpouring of videos of Little Richard and interviews that I hadn't seen before of him just sort of affirming his queerness, affirming his ego in a positive way, not not sort of like a Kanye West ego sort of way you know like Mm -hmm. hey i created this shit i deserve this respect i respect myself even if you don't respect me uh it was so great seeing videos of a black man in interviews like that particularly his one with arsenio hall interview with another prominent black man and just you know being his flamboyant self yeah you just said it the video clips themselves are so thrilling to watch first of all He's somebody like um, Cher or just the kind of celebrity where there is no second one. Like mm-hmm. once mm-hmm. we're done with Little Richard, there's no heir to him, even though like so much rock and roll music followed. And you can obviously trace um, his influence to Prince and James Brown, et cetera. But just 
the way he speaks, the way in which he is so casually funny. This is a phrase I learned from Cloris Leachman talking about Paul Lind. He was born finished. He was always that thing. He was born always finished. exactly that entity. He's also somebody where if there were a musical biopic, maybe Jack Hay should play him. <laughs> I can see it. You know, you know, I think that would be that would be interesting. Lewis, I think that I think that would be nice to see. That would be nice to see. I and this is <laughs> the I think picture that picture the zeal. Aida. But Ira, to your point, it, it was a, another reminder, and I think that we'll get into this later. This goes along with the Becoming documentary that I just watched. That Little Richard really embodied confidence, not for the sake of confidence, but for like, oh, I know the gift that I have, and it, I can back it up. It's here. It's in like, like you were saying, it's the opposite of Kanye, who's like, everybody should listen to this. And Little Richard felt like, if this is for you, listen to this and enjoy it. Like that. That's just very resonant with me. Mm-hmm. Also, Aida, you just brought up Soul Train. If there's a clip of Little Richard, everybody should see it's he presented the best new artist Grammy to Soul Train alumna Jody Watley in the late 80s. And as he's giving it, oh, I love this says, moment. And the best, love it. And he goes, and the best new artist is, and he stops and looks at everyone and goes, me. <laughs> and everyone can't believe it. It's a moment that actually goes on a long time. And Jody Watley afterwards is very like stunned to be standing where she's standing. Yeah. But um, is this his moment just, where he's like, "Y'all ain't never given me a Grammy." Yes, correct. Is, yes. is that his? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was like, "Y'all ain't never given me no Grammy." Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Little Richard is iconic. Mm. He's like a combination of James Brown and Rip Taylor. Somehow there's like a middle ground right there. So speaking of Soul Train, I've been also watching clips of the new dance show. It was like a television series uh, out of Detroit in the late 80s. And the final air date was 96. But uh, it was just like a low budget local version of Soul Train. And it had people dancing to like electro funk disco music. Um, I think there was even an clips that were going around of black people dancing to craft work and it was craft work very yes fun to watch. i went down I, that I whole recently I, yes, too i spent like two hours that must have been where i saw it oh we lost florian schneider this week from craft work yes yeah again it's a lot of losses day after day music after day. wise but that's that sounds like a cool show i'll check it out i used to love the grind <laughs> i used to love the grind i wish that we had dance shows that were just dancing to dance like we have whole musical well, now we have tiktok right now we have tiktok true. The kids you know are just what? dancing in their homes. Uh, yeah. A phenomenon <laughs> I've noticed about TikTok recently is that dancing has become smaller because it has to fit in your phone screen. <laughs> so like all the moves are just very like right here, right in front of your torso. And it's very sad. That's very, very sad. Yeah. Uh, you brought up Becoming also, Aida. Did we all get a chance to look at that? After oh, I, I did. Ro- yes. After I roasted the Daily Beast last week. Oh, yes. For their scam of an article. <laughs> I did watch it. Watching it, right? Like that quote is not the incendiary thing that they created out of it. And um, also literally has nothing to do with the rest of the documentary. Correct. Well, And the quote Ira is talking about is when she, uh, Michelle Obama is talking about how the trauma of being in the uh, Obama White House was that so many times voters didn't, quote, show up to the polls. Um, and one of those quotes was misinterpreted as her saying, oh, only black voters didn't show up when she meant mm-hmm. Democrats. But um, to me, the best quote in the entire documentary is right after that and did not pick up as much as that quote obviously did when she said, people think this is a game. And I think mm-hmm. that is the essential takeaway from the documentary, which is like, 
because Republicans specifically have gamified this and made it seem like winning is everything, it's easy to lose track of what's at stake when it feels like you're just up against egos all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I got a chance to watch the documentary, and like I was saying, it's such an ins- it was such an inspirational documentary, even though I feel like I have nothing to do to aspire to right mm-hmm. now. But um, it was nice to see it. And I, at, at first I had the critique that it was not, vulnerable enough like she wasn't really showing the things that i wanted to see but at certain i kind of settled on the fact that she doesn't need to be vulnerable <laughs> and show me that this her being a, a paragon like her being someone who is black excellence nearly through and through is rare and i get they never get to see that so i was like okay she can just keep michelle can keep being michelle from Southside chicago that's all you need to know about her like that is revolutionary enough yeah i think just because she is a public figure and you know, she no longer is in the White House just because she is a staple of the Black community. We sort of want and crave that vulnerability, but I agree with you. I don't think that we deserve it or need it, to be honest. You know, we yeah. she is part of the first Black presidency, you know, and I think that that is something that should remove her from a lot of that introspection that I think we get from other people who are who are creatives and writers, et cetera, you know, that that is not her, you know, and that's also not mm-hmm. the life that she wants. I don't think that she wants to share that much with the world. She's sharing enough, but I think that, you know, this was sort of an extension. If you've read the book, like you, the documentary is a super more enlightening, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's nice to see the children all grown up and looking... Um, very assured of themselves, you know, grown. especially because right, Aaliyah shirt, just like <laughs> just like knowing what they'd been through and now seeing them come out of the other side of it. I think that was my takeaway of becoming seeing what this black family looks like on the other side of the game. And also, mm-hmm. by the way, just watching Michelle in general be someone who is so intelligent, having to channel that much intelligence into a universal message all the time, which she did flawlessly throughout. Um, Barack's presidency. I will say, I think I was slightly disappointed by how much of it, how much of the documentary is clips from onstage Q&As. Like, I'm not saying I needed her to write me a poem every time she gave us a confessional, (laughs) but like to see her only talking in front of an audience, like, I I think we could have gotten a little bit more depth otherwise. Yeah. You wanted a little Nikki Giovanni moment from her? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of Joe Scott again. um, Yeah, I I think... I think if Michelle talked about like her arguments with Barack or like even like her sex life or anything like that, I would be so put off. Like that would really give becoming a whole different meaning. But um, it's <laughs> oh, like back to that. No. Okay, I I'm glad that took some time. I'm so whatever. Like like Michelle, Ooh. do you becoming? Yes or no? Like how's Barack? Okay. Um, <laughs> I am. Yes, I am not. Yeah, I, I am not trying to get killed, Aida. <laughs> Yes or no? Yes or no? Anyway, how's the state of that union? Okay, so, um, okay, I'm done with my really bad rock jokes. But, yeah, I'm glad that she kept it to where she kept it. It's nice to see Sasha Malia. Overall, beautiful documentary. Overall, beautiful. Yeah. Oh, before I forget, I'll squeeze in with my usual Lewisisms that I was watching. You'll be shocked. Uh, British game shows, one. Uh, everybody has to watch this show, Pointless, that I think I've brought up before, which is the opposite of Family Feud, where you have to guess the least popular answer. Um, it's a super fascinating game and I wish they had it here. Anyway, I've also been obsessed with old Hitchcock movies, the ones that are less than super classic. I watched Suspicion, which actually won the actress Joan Fontaine an Oscar, and it is the worst best actress win I've ever seen. 
Uh, it's her job in this movie to just be afraid of her husband and then also stupidly believing him the entire time. There's lots of movies like this. Gaslight, where uh, w- women are like ha- are wide-eyed, saucer-eyed, and their devious, <laughs> dark-haired husbands are ruining everything for them. Um, this is in that genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, I want to say congratulations to Nicki Minaj finally being number one on iTunes on her 100, <laughs> 109th chart entry with, of all people, Doja Cat. I'll allow it. Yes, I'll allow it. Ah, I'm so mad. Nikki should not. I I wish that they didn't collab. I really, really wish that Doja didn't do this. I mean, Dr. Luke Hive, we eaten, right? Oh, I know. Wait, is that Dr. Luke? (laughs) I have to tell you, I have a pretty bad memory for what Dr. Luke is and is not involved in. So I feel bad for that. I mean, he's he's basically um, a soap opera villain at this point, right? I mean, you forget (laughs) about him and then there's a new crime and, oh, wait, Dr. Luke was involved all along. <laughs> uh, it's like, ooh, I love this song. Oh, of course it was made by Dr. Luke. Yes. Right, right, right. <laughs> Kim Petras, etc. And also, I've pledged to get into the new Kalani album since my top played track of 2018 was her song with Charlie Puth, which still, done for me, is remains that girl. And will I guess <laughs> will remain a summer anthem during the summer where I do nothing at all, and I'll get to that in my keep it. <laughs> I think that uh, you should Instagram live yourself listening to a Kalani album because I want to see that. Light some incense, smoke some weed, get your patchouli candle out, Louis, <laughs> and um, some antidepressants. <laughs> That's how I listen to Kalani. Nothing about me is incense oriented. <laughs> Nothing about me is marijuana oriented. So I will have to learn an entirely new skill set. I feel like I grew up with incense in the house all the time. Is that not a thing that you ever experience, Louis? No, I would likely be allergic to that, in fact. Do white people burn incense at home? Do they burn incense? No. What were the smells going around my house? Yeah, do Pepperish Farm goldfish crackers have a smell? It was probably that. <laughs> <laughs> like a shark tang. Yes, uh, I definitely, I grew up with incense, of course, around the house, but maybe, I mean, it's Arabic, Muslim, African, just everything about it. It all always smelled like patchouli, truly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> smelled like Zendaya's hair, <laughs> quote unquote. <laughs> all right, Juliana. <laughs> I know. <laughs> She's out. Uh, <laughs> all right, when we're back, we'll be joined by the honorable Simone Missick. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Well, you may know her as the one-armed Misty Knight in the cage <laughs> or as the bounty hunter trap in Altered Carbon, but now she is starring in the CBS legal drama All Rise, which was just renewed for a second season. So please, All Rise for the Honorable Simone Missy. <laughs> <laughs> hello. Hello, hello. Hello. Hi. You all look bright and sprightly. <laughs> Thank we you. We got to force we, it in the mornings. <laughs> we do. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're actors too, Simone. <laughs> <laughs> look at me. Simone has a gorgeous backdrop right now. And then I realized, oh, this is 
her entire job at the moment because they yes. film all Rise in Zoom episodes. So you must be a master of this medium, actually. You know what? It's going on my resume as special skills. I don't care what anybody says. I'm going to be able to take it. <laughs> Set design. Set production. Yep. Color correction. All everything. of that. All of that. Location yeah. scouting, production design, props. <laughs> First of all, I love a legal drama. Uh, and in terms mm. of CBS, you know, I've been such a huge Good Wife fan and I love The Good Fight. And I was like, when I sat down to check out All Rise, I was more than surprised by just how much I could not stop watching it. Oh. It is such a enjoyable show. Um, I just think you're fantastic in it. And I really love that living here in Los Angeles, it's set in the Los Angeles court system. And I think that it does what, you know, what a good procedural does, you know, like it should be saying something about our society and the culture that we live in. And I feel like it does that every week. And so, um, it was really a joy to watch. Thank you um, so much. Literally all 22 episodes. That was in not what I thought you were going to say. I was like, you know, being <laughs> a fan of these big traditional legal dramas, I was a little on the fan. I thought that was where you were going with it. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad it ended on an up note. Yeah. The show, to me, it's, it's interesting because it's different. You know, it is designed to be hopeful in a way that I think that people who watch traditional legal dramas are like, this isn't really that. Uh, and yet mm. I find myself coming in contact with a lot of people online and in, in, in real life, you know, pre-quarantine uh, saying, I watch this show with my parents. I watch this show with my mom. Me and my girlfriends watch this show every week. We, you know, just this idea that it is hopeful in a way, even though, like you said, it is dealing with very timely issues, very present issues. We deal with everything from ICE and immigration to criminalizing indigent people to, you know, the difference in health care for Black women. I mean, we handle some pretty mm. serious issues, and yet we find a way to find comedy and humor through the lives of the people, not necessarily the cases, that I think is really different. And so I grew up, when I knew I wanted to be an actor, I just said I really wanted to make people happy. And it's interesting that this job is the thing that I feel connects with people in that kind of upbeat way. I mean, like you said, I did Alter Carbon, I did Luke Cage, and those made people happy for different reasons. You know, there were genres mm. that have huge fan followings and identify with people on a different level. But it's interesting how many people this show reaches and is able to talk about stuff that I think across party lines and partisanship boundaries, people might not discuss in this way. It was so fascinating watching you guys do entire Zoom episodes. I mean, this is a, when I watch SNL, and and they do this, I think like, oh, it's kind of cute. They're like putting on a play for us, you know? It, it, uh, but when I watch you guys, <laughs> you have to convey actual drama. It reminds me of like an old timey radio play or something, you know, like like Basil Rathbone as Sherlock Holmes on CBS's All Rise, <laughs> whatever. But what is it like sitting there in front of a computer having to convey actual drama? It's interesting you say radio theater, which is basically what that genre is. And a lot of us on the show are theater trained. We've got two Tony Award winners on our show. And so yes. if you can convey large emotion to people in a large space, distilling that to a small computer screen is just a different technique. It's just a slight shift. It's the difference between 
you know, acting for television versus acting for film versus acting for stage. I heard an interview with a friend, a guy that I used to work with on Iron Fist, uh, Tom Pelfrey, and he was talking about how he started out his career doing soap opera. And he said Uh it took him a minute to adjust to the fact that this is opera. Like the emotions are big. Everything is big. The the pauses, the looks, the beats, everything is a part of that genre. And you have to accept that and not think, I'm going to do my best Sorkin for a soap opera. It's like, that's not that genre. And so it almost feels like acting for Zoom in a way is that. It's actually you focus more on connecting with the other actor because there's a screen versus, you know, if you're on a soundstage or on location, you've got the extras walking in the background to interact with the, you know, the non-verbal cues that your co-star is giving you, their body language, all these things that you take for granted when you're in the same space, that when you're acting with someone and they're, you know, on the other side of a green dot, you focus a little bit harder. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, I definitely do remember Tom from The Guiding Light. Uh, I, I, I watched that with my grandmother. Uh, remember, him was Reva's son. But um, I think that reminds me a little bit, too, about how Roger Ebert would maybe describe how he critiqued film. It wasn't comparing, you know, Minority Report to Hellraiser. You know, it was talking about the relative audience for each thing and how you are conveying what you need to convey, you know? So, like, you compare Minority Report to another thriller of that ilk, and I think that um, you've crossed genres, you know? And you, you know how you convey emotion on... All Rise is certainly different, you know, than a big comic book series, you right. know, like Luke Cage. Um, and it's it's just been great seeing these different sides of you as well. Um, and just seeing how it worked in Zoom, you know. I mean, it was your season finale for All Rise that you all did in the Zoom episode. And I, I just wanted to know, um, set-wise, when exactly were you cut off and, like, didn't know that you would be able to finish the season and what point were the producers and everyone's like okay we're making the zoom episode how do you find parts of your home that are like this is going to be the set now you know because i'm watching and i'm like these are characters that i've watched for like 20 episodes so far and now we're getting a glimpse into their homes but they're not exactly homes that a production designer would have designed for them, and it's presumably where they live. Yeah. So we found out that we were closing down March 13th, uh, and I want to say maybe three weeks later, we all hopped on a Zoom call thinking it was just a check-in, and our producers were like, hey, oh, by the way, we have this great idea for a Zoom episode. And our uh, show creator, Greg Spottiswood, starts you know, giving us the pitch, And he's got like a 10 minute treatment of what he's thinking. And we're all, you know, super blown away and excited. And at the same time, there's this moment where he's like, and then Lola and Mark, you know, meet on the stairs. And so we both instinctively get up with our computers and go sit on our respective stairwells, which then (laughs) made it into the episode. You know, there was this this feeling of, oh, my God, this is going to be great. We're going to get to finish out the season. We're going to give a proper season finale for our fans. And then for me, panic started to set in because I am a person (laughs) 
that doesn't want anybody in my house. Like I don't, <laughs> obviously my family and my friends, but I've never wanted to do an interview in my home. I've had people ask, oh, we want to come over. We want to photograph you. And it's like, no, we can meet at the bodega or we can meet <laughs> at the park. We can meet anywhere other than my personal space for many reasons. Mm-hmm. And so there was this, you know, thought of, wow, I have to let people into my home. And that was an adjustment. And then, you know, once we were doing location scouts, I'm like, oh, well, here's this, you know, this area. And they're like, yeah, no, we don't really like that. Uh, do you have anything else? <laughs> so all the all the parts that I was willing to to present, they were like, yeah, no, what else do you have? And so what's interesting is I shot in my dining room, which has this hardwood which they were like, oh, well, that kind of mimics what we felt in Lola's house in episode 19, I think it was. And so there was definitely a desire on their part to try to make it feel like these characters' spaces because they know that we have to eventually come back and rectify it. Uh You know, one part of my dining room is the office. The other part of the dining room is the judges' chambers, but you as the audience don't know that that's in the same space. So I've got a club chair and things to make it look like an office in my dining room. And so there was a bit of creativity that I quite enjoyed about that process of repurposing different parts of my home. I mean, my husband DJs in the episode, he plays DJ Tailwind Turner. And this (laughs) whole space behind us is his DJ area. But we had to take down, obviously, the personal photos of us because they all know each other (laughs) (laughs) there was a part of it that was that was really fun and then you know i think about characters that we don't see at home we have never seen judge benner at home we've never seen Mm -hmm. marg's character and now we get to watch a whole other side of her personality she was like the comic relief in the episode trying to bake mm-hmm. and to cook and she doesn't know how to make eggs. It's like, yeah. this is something that we never would have explored. And so there's something about being able to do the Zoom episode in each character's homes that I think brought a level of their character's personality out in ways that had it just been the, the next two you know episodes to get us to the finale, we wouldn't have seen. When I think about filming these CBS shows, I just think, first of all, there's always so many episodes, the hours long. I don't think people understand it is like a Herculean task to film a season of these shows, the amount of time it takes. Do you then still want to watch television afterwards? Do you find yourself consuming? Like, can you? Or are you completely sick of the medium altogether? No, I love TV. I I love watching great actors. I obviously don't have as much time for it when we're filming. Like you said, it is... Herculean uh, in a way. I feel like all of the work I do is is like that though. Like it's it's all consuming. I've thankfully been on projects, a part of TV shows where I'm not just, oh, I'll work one day and then I'm off for like three weeks. Like I've been, you know, doing shows where I'm there. And so it is an exhausting process, but I feel like Movies and TV fill me so much artistically that I can't not. And so, you know, it might be that I'm catching up on episodes on a weekend. It might be when I get home, if it's, you know, early, I get cut early, then I'm able to come and catch something. But I'm always, always watching TV. Like, you know, HBO is just on my constant stream when I think about (laughs) while I'm filming, because if it's not 
Big Little Lies, it was Game of Thrones. If it wasn't that, then it is insecure right now. I'm catching up on The Wire, which I didn't watch when it was first on because I didn't have HBO. I was poor. But, you know, it's constantly watching TV and film because those are the people that, that, those are your peers. You know, those are the people that you aspire to reach, but also to be on the same level as, and, you know, there's something about watching people that, and then I've got a lot of friends who are working. So then part of it is also that, like supporting your friends who are on TV and in, and in movies. So yeah, no, I don't cut out. And I'm always amazed by people who are like, not only do I not watch TV, I don't watch my own stuff. And I'm like that, you know, there is a level of separation that you have to do from watching your stuff and being super critical and being able to objectively look at it. But I think you can't figure out how to tell stories better if you're not observing the way that you're telling stories. Like if I, I, and maybe it's just because I'm a judgmental person when it comes to myself. Like I can, I am my biggest critic. So I can look at myself and go, that was false. Ooh, I remember that day. I wasn't prepared. Oh, that was the moment that I really didn't feel that storyline. I wish I had said something or I wish I had, you know, those are the things that make me a better artist is constantly critiquing myself and my work. I know that you had brought up Insecure too. And, you know, I mean, Obviously, this season, you know, that relationship between Issa and Molly Woo! is fraught. Um, but it is so nice what you mentioned, you know, being a black woman playing a judge on a CBS show, just seeing the way that you're different, even from like the last black woman to lead, like a network show, you know, like uh, Kerry Washington in Scandal, you know, like this. I think there is a certain tenderness that you play the role with that is very comforting to watch, particularly in the sea of the justice system that the show wades through. Um, and, you know, I think that you bring that quality to a lot of your work. Um, I had recently seen um, the film Jen that I thought that you were great in because um, I met the director at um, at an event. Nigella Moomin. Yeah, at, I met her at an Uncut Gems event. And oh. she was like, <laughs> I know, keep it. it she was, was like, I made a movie. And I was like, oh, I'm going to go watch it. Uh, and then you ended up being in it. Um, and I just sort of, what do you see as the current landscape? Now, you talked about the NBC stuff, not seeing yourself on TV. Like, what do you see as a current landscape for black women? Um, and what do you hope to come out of it in the future now? I... I'm so happy with the way that Black women are able to be a part of shows that I think previously we wouldn't have been a part of to lead shows on networks that we have, you know, five years ago were not. Obviously, Issa bringing Insecure to HBO opened up the door. Now we see Old Girl from Chewing Gum. Her show is about to premiere on HBO, that's exciting. Genre build, bending, Queen Sono on Netflix, I think maybe would not have existed had Luke Cage not broken Netflix and premiered in 196 countries and done well. I mean, that was a market that was so ignored by so many people. I'm so happy to see a beautiful black woman kicking ass, doing her own stunts, speaking several different languages, in, you know, this spy, espionage, global, political thriller, it's happening. And it's not just own or BET where it's happening. You know, 
Jessica Francis Duke is on the last season of Ozark. And she's a theater Black woman who, this is like big opportunity for her as an actress. I feel like it's happening. I think that the fact that our industry is right now in flux, there will be a democracy of content. Like there will be a leveling of the playing field because I think so many people are going to have to be inventive. There are people who are going to be creating content right now. And so many networks and studios are going to look for content that they can buy that's prepackaged. And hopefully those are going to be people of color who are you know, being given opportunities that previously they would not have been able to get. I hope that this continues, that it's not just a directive, that it's not just, we don't have enough people on the screen that look like this. Let's do this right now and placate people. I hope it continues and that it only continues to grow in the types of stories that we tell. You know, there was no Jordan Peele until there was a Jordan Peele. And now we're watching, you know, so many great stories coming from him. There are Tons of people out there studying Jordan Peele now and trying to come up with how they can tell their version of this horror political commentary, you know, genre that he's kind of revived because I can't say he invented it, but he put his own spin on it in a way that I think is genius. And so... And I remember always watching uh, horror films and being like, man, I wish black people could do a good one like this. (laughs) I wish we could have one like this. But our stuff is always just... Not that good. I can't Mm. wait until I see women who look like me in political thrillers. That Mm. Those political thrillers or just thrillers, period, have always been movies that I've loved. And we've seen people take stabs at it and remake the traditional Hollywood version of this was the original movie. Now we're going to make our own version of it. And it's never quite there because there is a level of disbelief that I think a lot of people of color, especially black people in situations that thrillers might require you to suspend disbelief to be in that we're like, man, that shit would never happen. And so I can't wait to see somebody take that genre and make it work in the way that we've seen Jordan Peele do it. And so I hope that, you know, in the next few years, that's what we see. We see things expand so that there are more stories being told about people of color and people who are in marginalized sections of society in a way that's new and inventive and different. Come on, Pelican Brief Reboot. Let's do it. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Simone. Thank you. Uh, Sincerely. I mean, people really should just like, while you're at home, go and binge All Rise. It is a great binge. I feel like I have become CBS Hive now. Like, I mean, <laughs> oh. first of all, speaking of Luke Cage, I mean, like, Mike Holter is on Evil. Yeah. Um, yes. And yep. I just, I binged that show recently, too, and I'm obsessed with it. Yeah. Uh, so, look, look, y'all just reunited. On, you know? Just do reunited it. Reunited on the eye. On I'm the watching eye. it. <laughs> CBS was smart. They were like, oh, they not working? We'll take that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Food Culture Hive, we're eating. <laughs> are we? Are we eating? Are we actually? The other, the other, I I, see, I already used knives out when we started the show, so. <laughs> That's, well, you know, I'm waiting for your Roman's Revenge joke. I'm sure there's one. <laughs> I'd hope. I'd hope there's one. I think Roman <laughs> took a holiday after this week. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Putting it in my language. There we go. There right. we go. Um... <laughs> On Friday, in an interview with New Consumer, New York Times cooking contributor, Bon Appetit <laughs> alum, and recent cooking companion of John Lovett, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, <laughs> um, had some choice words about two higher-profile women, Chrissy Teigen and Marie Kondo. This was a brief spat, very brief. I feel like it completely wrapped up yesterday. Uh, that has yes. opened up conversations about food culture, culinary imperialism, and how COVID is changing our relationship to food. So before we talk a bit about how COVID is changing our own personal relationships with food, let's get into what this quote actually was. Allison said, what Chrissy Teigen has done is so crazy to me. She had a successful cookbook, and then it was like, boom, line at Target. Boom, now she has an Instagram page that has over a million followers where it's just like people running a content farm for her. That horrifies me, and it's not something that I ever want to do. I don't aspire to that. But, like, who's laughing now? Because she's making a ton of fucking money. <laughs> I'm more interested in expanding myself as a writer. My next book is going to be narrative nonfiction, essays, and short stories and stuff. Okay. That is actually the funniest part of that <laughs> quote where she's like, oh my God, this entire other brand of thinking is so inauthentic. You know what I'm going to hit you with? <laughs> Nonfiction. Oh, good. Phew. What I was just thinking is I needed another Lena Dunham book on my shelf. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it reminds me of when food bloggers were roasting Mindy Kaling the other week when she was like, how come every time I try to look up a recipe, there is a essay that you have to muddle through before you get to the recipe? And I feel like <laughs> this Allison Roman book would be the equivalent of here's a 10-page essay, and then at the end of it, this is how to make chicken tetrazzini. Yeah, and it's, it's never anything educational. It's always like, what fennel has done for my life? And then it's the recipe at the bottom. Like, I don't stop. Just move on. And then about Marie Kondo, she said, the idea that when Marie Kondo decided to capitalize on her fame and make stuff that you can buy – that is completely antithetical to everything she's ever taught you. I'm like, damn, bitch, you fucking just sold out immediately. <laughs> Someone's like, you should make stuff. And she's like, okay, slap my name on it. I don't give a shit. Allison Roman needs a minder. She needs like somebody who to like give her any media training at all. What the, You called Marie Kondo a bitch? Absolutely <laughs> none. And 
What's wild is she is a Bon Appetit alum, but she also mm-hmm. comes from BuzzFeed. No. I feel like this particular era of internet writers does not have that internet training because so much of what people tweet or talk about in interviews feels like, I think Sam Sanders described it online as um, taking the group chat and putting it in public. This is shit that she could have texted <laughs> to her friends. It is not shit that and you say it. to new consumer. Especially when Chrissy Teigen, <laughs> as it was revealed, is supposedly executive producing a television show for Allison Rose. That blew <laughs> my strange. mind. Like, all this was normal until that. But I think, in a way, a confrontation like this was almost inevitable because her whole brand is not fancy. I'm not like the other bloggers. I'm down to earth, whatever. But unfortunately, she had amassed a certain amount of fame. And in order to maintain that image... Eventually, you basically have to say, well, I'm not like these other extremely popular people in my field. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. in a way, I felt like it was, I don't want to say just desserts, but it, it reminds me. It reminds me <laughs> well, you did. Well, you did. You said it, Lewis. You still said it. But it, it, it reminds me a little bit of, and this is somebody I fucking love, like, you know, Casey Musgraves has an entire album called, like, I'm not pageant material. And it's like, yeah. like it, it's tough to stake a brand on you think I'm one thing, but I'm real. You think, you know, uh-huh. and and to follow through with that, I think will get you in trouble because also it's not like everyone else is fake, but you, you know, like that's yeah. that's a misnomer also. So it felt very pink. It yes, felt very, very, very pink. It's very, it's very in, in her it's mis- very... in her misunderstood era. Like I'm not fucking Britney Spears, and it's like exactly okay, girl. I mean, you've got your na 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 song, so. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and your ace, your asymmetrical haircut. It's very Rachel Ray done poorly. Like she could go down that aisle, but she didn't. She's just critical of two women of color. Right. Optics. Use them. Your brain. Use it. Like try. What really brought social media out against Allison Roman in this moment was that her targets happened to be two very successful women of color. Part of it felt like it was jealousy. Part of it brought up conversations about you know, culinary imperialism, because as a white woman, uh, Alison Roman is part of this culture that gets to write about food that is from other cultures, and it sort of waters it down for um, white people who are afraid of spices. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which is a large percentage of them. I don't know if you paid attention to the media, but yeah. yeah. I've gotten to eat with you, Lewis. (laughs) The one time I've ever related to somebody's food observations is when Anderson Cooper once said, if I could, I would take a pill and forget about food altogether for the entire day. Like, it does nothing to it. Food rarely sings to me. I will say that the entire kerfuffle between them brought up an interesting point that I think Roxanne Gay raised. And it is that there was a way to critique Alison Roman, and she was definitely out of pocket for the shit that she said. Uh, But there also seems to be this culture of like laying in wait for people that you dislike. Right, right. For for the one moment where you can drag them, right? You know, it reminds me of when um people were dragging Lovey. Do you remember that Aida for saying something about Tevin Campbell shouldn't have been involved in like a Prince tribute or something. And the thing that she said was so innocuous, but people already felt some type of way about her, so it was the one little comment mm-hmm. that just allowed people to pounce and i think that people in COVID now particularly with 
lack of access to restaurants, right? And everyone yes. feeling overwhelmed with maybe trying to cook dinner for their families. Everyone overwhelmed with trying to cook dinner cheaply. Uh, Allison Roman has, I've never heard this woman's name more often than in COVID, right? I felt like- I didn't learn her name until this happened. <laughs> right. Until the quarantine happened, uh, that's when I felt like people started doing her shallot pasta recipe. You know, like everyone's talking about Allison Roman, this and that and that. Uh, I When people kept talking about it, I ordered her book um, because I love whipping up mm-hmm. some easy recipes in the kitchen. And ironically enough, it arrived on the day of the drama. <laughs> um, <laughs> but- um, <laughs> I think that some people just already felt a type of way and used it as an excuse to really go in. Because, you know, I feel like, sure, she's given some cooking ideals for the white girls, but I really don't pay her any big mind as some, like, big person who is taking down the food industry. Yeah, and it's like, especially with COVID, we're all home, whatever, and I don't want to say this word, Lewis, but we're all stewing on it. (laughs) And it's like, it's very easy for us to, it's very easy for us to, you know, become obsessed with what's going on around us. But my favorite part about all of this was the way Chrissy reacted because Chrissy has this penchant for like blowing shit up publicly and not being afraid to air the shit out, which I love. That's my favorite song. Play that again. Play it louder. <laughs> I've It's fun. Thank you. I love the histrionics, but her response, like the way that, I mean, you guys can probably speak to this. The way that Allison responded was still very like dismissive of what happened the first couple times. I didn't really like the way at first she re- reacted to this, especially with Chrissy, like we were saying, producing her show, like someone who invests in you and cares about you and champions you for you to turn around and talk all this mess. It's so bizarre. Yeah, her initial response when she tweeted at Chrissy that um, being a woman who takes down other women is absolutely not my thing and don't think it's yours either is such a backhanded apology. (laughs) It's like, I didn't mean to do this and I'm sure you didn't mean (laughs) to be angry at my comments. Uh, So it did unfortunately expose the way a lot of white women just sort of talk about women of color. You know, in spaces where we can't hear. There's also something to be said for how protective people are of Chrissy Teigen, I think. And she also described how people were vicious to her online after certain, uh, during this debate. So I don't mean to say people are uniformly nice to Chrissy Teigen. But she really has ignited this, like, Liz Lemon thing in people where I feel like half of the women in America think Chrissy Teigen is, like, the deified version of them. Like, literally, she's Mm. their ambassador to fame in a way or something. And so if you're going to go after, like, another person seemingly unapologetically, going for Chrissy Teigen is, like, one of the toughest challenges you could possibly set yourself up for because people Mm -hmm. identify with Chrissy Teigen. Meanwhile, attacking Marie Kondo, I cannot think of a person who constitutionally cares less what you think. I, In a way, (laughs) you should probably insult her again. She doesn't care. (laughs) (laughs) Marie Kondo was like, I don't have time for the beef. It does not spark joy. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Also, digs at Marie Kondo, I feel like this point are just so, it was just so stale. We've heard that Mm -hmm. before. Like, she seems to have uh, taken up permanent residence in so many women's minds. I mean, you remember that thing that we were talking about last year at the height of her Netflix show where she first started selling things where people were like, this is so antithetical to everything that you were preaching. And it was like, not if you were familiar with her work. And why are you mad? Uh, She also did not force you to throw things away from your home. 
So <laughs> the, the, the vitriol that Marie Kondo inspires is wild to me. And the Chrissy Teigen thing that you brought up too, Lewis, is, is very apt. Because one, I feel like Instagram now is completely made of reposting Christy Teigen tweets mm-hmm. on Instagram. I feel like every there are so many fucking accounts that get capital off of just reposting the shit that she tweets. You know, like, so she's not just, to quote Alison Roman, a content farm for herself. Like, Chrissy Teigen is making other people money. Right, mm-hmm. right. Also, in general, by the way, look up people from high school you haven't spoken to in 15 years or whatever and check out their Twitter accounts. I'm telling you at some point that person has messaged Chrissy Teigen. Like you'll see a tweet at her because they, that person thinks they're connected. I'm telling you there's like a psychosis involved. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, I, I'm sure if I dig it up, there are messages between me and Chrissy where I'm just like, hey, pay attention to me, please. But <laughs> it's like also the Marie Kondo of it all. Marie Kondo didn't say like, don't buy shit. She said, Buy, don't buy shit you don't need. Like, my shit is stuff that you need. It's just, I get the, I don't even like the argument that's like, what she says is antithetical. She's not really making a lot of commentary on consumerism. She's just like, don't keep shit that doesn't make you happy. Right. But in the midst of all of this, I was also reading this article from one-time Keep It guest co-host, Hannah Gorgeous. Okay, Habesha Queen. Yes, it was in The Atlantic, and it was just basically about how uh, food culture as we know it is over. Thanks to the pandemic, Um, Hannah wrote that, unsurprisingly, pandemic-specific food programming has emerged in recent weeks. Much of the country is grappling with unemployment, unsafe working conditions, disease, grief about losing our old way of life. A show like Home Cooking from um, cookbook author Samin Nasrat. Um, It sort of like assists listeners in making sense of the disparate ingredients already lying around in their kitchen you know so i think a Mm -hmm. lot of people are making do with you know like just whipping stuff up things that can be easy to procure especially when grocery stores may be sold out of so many things uh and i feel that you know it sort of reminds me a bit of what it was like growing up you know we just sort of cooked whatever was in the house sometimes uh and so many people are reverting to that and how, how are you all dealing with what you're eating? Do you have fun? You have a different relationship with food in the midst of all of this? I pick like three places that I get food from and get the same thing again and again. Truly, I mean, yeah. you know the robots that Kraftwerk sings about? I'm like one of those. I, <laughs> I, I take the Autobahn to the one market and take it home. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I, I've become unfancy in terms of what I try out, even though... Like, I think restaurants are obviously being innovative and places that never did takeout before are doing takeout. Lots of opportunities to help out the restaurant industry right now. But um, it's made me unadventurous, certainly. It, it's it's the part of my day I like thinking about the least. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't I don't want to allot time to cook every day. And because I'm home, I feel like this necessity to do that. But I'm, I'm just back with the staples, rice, lentils, trying to still keep eating vegan. I try and do that as much as possible. But it, it feels it's hard to it's harder to resist that kind of temptation when you're at home and the cheese is just like in the fridge yeah. you know, waiting for you. So I'm trying. It's, it's 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 definitely difficult. And the menu has stayed the same, like Lewis said. So yeah, uh, I feel like cooking for me has always been something that I do to sort of forget about things. Um, but in the midst of every day being the same, um, it, it feels 
sort of like cooking is not an escape. It almost feels like a chore. And so, you know, I have like a food delivery service mm -hmm. um, and I do enjoy restaurants and food culture. So, you know, I have have been getting takeout for certain evenings, you know, like um, places like Bevel and Bestia here in Los Angeles are doing takeout. Even fancy restaurant like in Culver, like Septim is now doing it as well. Um, they have this Yucatan um, themed dinner that you can get. And so I've been exploring some of that. It's also n feels nice to help out local restaurants that you would normally visit when the pandemic is over. Um, I am looking forward to being able to eat <laughs> in a restaurant yes. again, though. So is Cardi B. I don't know if you've seen the video footage. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yes. I should Holy. be eating sushi. <laughs> Instead, I am eating cereal. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. She's mad. <laughs> but I will say about to tie up this foodie culture conversation, you people who enjoy cooking for other people, I'm going to take advantage of you. I like that you mm -hmm. exist. I don't know what the hell is wrong with you, though, because, my God, that's a lot of work. And what if you do it wrong? I'm just saying I'm suspicious of it as a hobby. It's way too time intensive, but good for you and good for me that I know you. <laughs> I, used to, I used to do that. I feel like I should do that more, you know, um, when this is all over at least. There's just something about cooking for friends, you know, and it's not a big dinner party, you know, it's like three or four friends over at a time. It just feels, I know, cooking for people just feels intimate and like you get to know them better, you know? And part of the thing, like when you have debates with friends, it's like bringing up wanting to cook and, you know, it's like, do you cook? I never see you cook. It's like, Sweetie, I'm not saying that I'm Wolfgang Puck here, you know, but like if I'm if I'm whip, if I'm whipping up something for people that I care about, um, I hope that you get the intention in it. I would only learn to cook so that when I play Harper, Mary Louise Parker's role in Angels in America, I can successfully <laughs> say the line, "I burnt dinner with conviction." That's my dream. <laughs> All right, when we're back, keep it. glad we covered the Alison Roman stuff because that would have been a whole that's kept it's kept it's gone my keep it this week is kind of a two-part keep it but of course it goes to Jerry Seinfeld's new special that dropped on Netflix not the special dropping I know that Jerry Seinfeld is going to do what Jerry Seinfeld does but Netflix we've been in a committed relationship for like seven eight years like please know me better know that I don't want to see that know that I don't care what that little old man is saying and like <laughs> I get it I get it that for his time he was revolutionary and he, you know, was saying stuff that nobody was saying, whatever. That's because nobody had Twitter. Nobody had friends that were insightful and were making up like these very common observations. I just am so tired of Jerry Seinfeld and his little turtle face. Look, and I watch, tried to watch the special. The content is not good. There's so much shit that Jerry could talk. Jerry could air out so much stand-up comedy stuff, but refuses to do it. Talk about your divorce. Like, talk shit on Dave Chappelle. Make this interesting for me. I don't need to hear about going inside and going outside, especially now in a time where I am stuck in. And then on the other side, keep it to critiques of that special my whole timeline is full of like jerry seinfeld memes and how bad the special is and this exactly what i just said in the first part of my keep it is my timeline right now and <laughs> it's like it's like what do you expect from jerry seinfeld he's not he's he has a whole section about smartphones and how they're i'm he's smarter than them like it's the most basic observation that look just jerry just stop 
stop. And Netflix, do better. No, no more of this low-hanging fruit. Don't recommend any stand-up to me that is an old white man who, who is just no Jerry Seinfeld. I'm done. Shut What's it down. the deal Shut with Aida's Netflix recommendations? <laughs> exactly. This is the first Mobius exactly. strip, keep it. It started one way and then ended upside yeah. down inside of itself. It is. It's very meta. It's about itself. It really is. I'm critiquing myself. Keep it to Aida, even watching this Jerry Seinfeld special. Get over it. He's done. I know there are people who are obsessed with Seinfeld as a TV show. And if I go back and watch it, obviously, Julia Louis-Dreyfus is a genius. They're all genius actors, actually. Mm-hmm. But it is it is weird to watch it back because the idea of having minor observations has been so democratized that when you watch that show, you don't think of anything he's saying as even remotely novel anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like It's just been covered time and again. And obviously, he deserves credit for... You know, revolutionizing that kind of micro observation as like the real kernel of a, of a com- comedic voice. Yeah. But watching it back, it feels so pale now because we all do that. That's everybody's job now. Yeah, I feel like the thing that I do keep coming back to that makes me want Seinfeld reruns. I I enjoy the show a lot, um, mm-hmm. even though I didn't get into it until middle school because I used to watch Martin. Um, and the Thursday night shit on Fox, the black shit. Uh, and then I went to high school, my all boys, white Catholic high school, and literally <laughs> everyone was constantly at lunch talking about this fucking Seinfeld show. So I had to watch it to be part of a conversation. Yeah. Uh, that's how white people get you. Um, <laughs> and But the thing that kept bringing me in was always Elaine, you know? And it yes. makes sense that they originally hadn't conceived of her in the show, in the pilot, and mm-hmm. that... Um, they didn't know how to write women, so they basically just wrote her like a man, and maybe that's why she seems so revolutionary for the time. You know, her storylines are mostly the funniest of each episode. Her and George um, are neck and neck with who's the funniest, and I just think that she has such a great comedic time in that I could rewatch uh, so many Seinfeld episodes just for Elaine and her reactions. That's a pretty broad comic show, but she. There's no other way to put this, and I'm sorry this sounds so elementary. Feels like a an entire human being for what that character yeah. is. Whereas the others, like like George, is just a you know inhuman mess. Kramer is a mm-hmm. cartoon. Jerry is you know stand up jokes woven into a script. Inexplicably yeah. Yeah. fucking hot women every week. Right? <laughs> models. The, the Woody models. Allen of it all. And he's not the Jerry Seinfeld who exists IRL. He's just. <laughs> A white guy in New York, sir. Yeah, the wish fulfillment. <laughs> but that 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 is it. That is, I don't want Seinfeld, especially now because you know, someone who loves stand up does stand up and is is grieving the loss of stand up right now. It was the last thing I needed to see. Also, I would say that um, the Susie top tier episode of Seinfeld because it's all Elaine. Yeah. Oh it's yeah. All Love Elaine. that episode. All Elaine. Ugh. Lewis, what's your keep it this week? This is a keep it. I am. Sad to say, uh, you will understand immediately that it contradicts my brand, but I think it must be stated. (laughs) Keep it to summer. And by that, I mean, I don't want to hear anybody having remote hopes of hitting the beach (laughs) in June. I don't want to hear anybody talking about potential Fourth of July celebrations. My birthday's in August. Don't celebrate my birthday. All I'm saying is I have come to the decision not to be hopeful about a summer, and it has made me a little bit happier. As in... Just zero in on the fact that we have gotten no evidence that we should be outside, period. So stop (laughs) pretending like even L.A. entering a phase two, that means I should be in the world more. It shouldn't be. That's not in the cards. Sit at home. 
get on your Amazon Prime or Netflix or whatever. Just say, you know what? This is the summer. If you're me, Louis Vertel, I'm seeing every Barbara Stanwyck movie. Mm -hmm. This is the summer. I'm finally going to discover what Escape at Dannemora was because I still don't really know. Okay? <laughs> I understand that Patricia Arquette was in it and Ben Stiller was somehow involved. I don't know what they're escaping or how even to spell Dannemora. I'm going to find out. You know? <laughs> Will I see the big C? Maybe. This is a summer of revisiting content, mm -hmm. of discovering the content you've ignored, and it's not going to be a traditional summer. And even if somehow miraculously we're told in late August, like, all right, you get a couple of weeks to act like summer is normal, don't anticipate that. <laughs> Let's get that out of your head. So I think this is a version of not pessimism, but of finding optimism in reality. So I'm hoping everybody jumps on that train along with me. And just don't bring up my birthday. It's a tough issue. <laughs> when is your birthday, Louis? August 4th. Like a week after Ooh. Iris. Ira and I are uh, uh, oh, yeah, you're both, both almost the exact Leos, age. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. you know, catch Louis's new book coming out the summer of our discontent. <laughs> <laughs> it's happening. <laughs> we are inside. Damn, I could use you. Let's head over to Simon & Schuster. No. <laughs> uh... So my keep it this week is, um, first of all, um, I neglected to mention, I said I was going to bring it up uh, when we were talking about Miss Allison Roman. Um, <laughs> the, little, the little cooking Instagram series that, she's been, that she did, we love it. And like he's been cooking oh, yeah. on, on Crooked's Instagram a lot lately. And everyone who's branding themselves into a chef during this time is, is doing a lot. <laughs> Let's just put that out there. Just cook. <laughs> we don't need to see you cook it. <laughs> we don't need to see it. <laughs> also, uh, just that Lovett has such a huge, beautiful, like Nancy Myers kitchen that so bullshit. that he I'm doesn't done. normally use, and it hurts my soul. I just want to have romantic um, comedy moments in that kitchen, and he's burning um, pasta. <laughs> Anybody who has a huge kitchen island right now and brags about it belongs on an island. That's where they belong. <laughs> I don't want to see that. Yeah. Uh, it's not my... complicated. Move to the island. Yeah. <laughs> my real keep it this week is to all of the drama surrounding Adele's weight loss. Ooh. Now, Miss Adele, burner of rain, breaker <laughs> of records, um, <laughs> Seller of albums at Starbucks. She Pavement is... Chaser. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> she is an icon. Um, she's always the moment because her albums are always at the top of the charts. And I'm constantly wondering who does not have her album that they continue to buy it over and over and over again. Right. Like, when she sold so many fucking records, it's like it does not make sense that people are still needing to go out and buy copies of 19 and 21. Like, mm -hmm. what do you do? You burn them after you listen to them <laughs> so you can get a new one? I have <laughs> questions. <laughs> but Miss Adele dropped an Instagram on her birthday, and whoo. Yes. The girls were fighting <laughs> over her dropping a significant amount of weight. I don't know why, first of all, why everyone was so shocked because she's never been one to like invite us into her life that intimately except through the music but um she's been documenting her weight loss on instagram like if you follow instagram you could see her getting progressively skinnier 
over the months, right? You know, like even her New Year's post, she looked so much smaller and now she does now. And I just think that like, unfortunately, this sparked a lot of base conversations with people being like, one, you can't compliment Adele and say that she looks gorgeous now because you have the people saying, what, she didn't look gorgeous before? You only like Adele because she's skinny? That's fat phobia. Or um, we shouldn't commend Adele on losing this weight. I hope she's happy. Um, here's the thing, bitch. She lost the weight because she wanted to lose the weight. That's what exactly. she wanted to do with her body. You know, speaking as someone who has um, dealt with their own weight over the years, you know, it's like your weight loss journey is your own journey and you are doing it because you have decided to make a choice about your own body that really isn't anybody else's business, you know? And you can look at Adele and say, damn, she looks great. Mm -hmm. That doesn't negate the fact that she looked great before, but she looks great now in the body that she is presenting to you. And she wouldn't have put it on Instagram if she did not want you to, like, see it. You know, like, she's, she didn't hide it. She shouldn't be ashamed of the fact that she wanted to lose some goddamn weight. And I just think that um, mm -hmm. it was so exhausting because everyone decided to make Adele's weight loss about their own bodies. And it's not about you. It's about her. I do think the noteworthy thing about that picture, because it reminded me of that Greta Gerwig picture that went viral, in that the styling was what was surprising. Like yes. to me, Adele for the first time ever looked like like a bridesmaid at a Midwestern wedding. Yeah. To which she I looked say, like a white woman, yeah. and I yeah. and I have always thought of her as a British woman of color, a full, uh, yes, and you know, like like a sister. Like I'm like, okay, yeah. She gets it. She's singing soul. She's down. The photo did make her look like she um, works in HR. Sure, yes. Also, I just want to say, if you posted about that picture, you always got 500,000 people responding to you with the same comment, which is, damn, I thought that was Sarah Paulson. No, you didn't. They're not the same person. <laughs> they don't look exactly the same. I see what you're saying, but like, you didn't all come up with that observation yourself. You saw somebody else do it. Did I cover your keep it? Okay. <laughs> People have this tendency to um, project their own insecurities onto celebrities and other people that they follow. And um, maybe don't. <laughs> it's just all I have to say, you know? I'm like, I looked at that and I was like, okay, Adele, do what you're doing, you know? It's like, I don't know, just the way that people obsess and whatever over people's bodies are very, it's very interesting to me. Oh, yeah. You know, like in, in, in that same week, you know, like I've, I've talked openly about my meal delivery service, like working out with my trainer um, all the time, especially during quarantine. And like during the other day, there was a comment on a new Instagram where someone was like, oh, Ira, did you lose weight or is that just the lighting? And I was like, what is wrong with you people? No, right. The, <laughs> the entitlement to ask, to know that it will get to you is so crazy and that people take advantage of it there's like some neurosis or something it's that bizarre thing that there. you mentioned about people like who like they've definitely messaged chrissy teigen yeah no it's they're, like they're like my it's friend like, do you chrissy. think she's going to respond and you think you're the first person to come up with this to her mind your business and be moisturized you know with this also reminder that you know like Black people can't even jog without being murdered um, with reminders that COVID is disproportionately affecting black people in other communities of color. Um, just seeing like the second wave in South Korea, like igniting like homophobia in that country because it, you, the case was at a gay bar. You know, it's just like there's too much going on in the world. We're all at home. 
can we just like chill the fuck out? Just stop being gross with everybody and each other, you know? Like, be happy. We all just want to look good. We all just want love. And we all just want to, I don't know, get through this. I, I, I sound like Brene Brown right now. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know what? I do have to say you do. You did, you did sound like Brene Brown. But that's brocade. I always, whenever you say Brene Brown, I want to put BR in front of every word. I always look at her name and I'm just always like, why isn't it Renee? <laughs> <laughs> what if her name was secretly like Renee B. Brown and that was her styling it? That's always what I think. What if she became a celebrity chef and cooked shrimp Renee? See, now you've spoken it into existence and I'm worried. <laughs> uh, all right. This was a wonderful show. Uh, thank you to uh, Simone Missick for joining us. And we'll see you next week. Keep It is a product of Crooked Media. Caroline Reston is our producer. It's Caroline like the princess, the one you don't care about. Our editor is Bill Lance, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Nadine Melkonian for filming and editing our video content every week. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com.